Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Blarney Books. Um, thanks very much for coming along. There's lots of uh, thanking and acknowledging to do. Um, and of course, we'll start with the Gunditjmara and Peekwurrung people on whose land we're all getting together today. Um, other people to thank are the Folky for sharing our very special guest with us um, and indeed our very special guest. Tim, thanks heaps for coming along and having a chat to us. My pleasure, my friend. Great to see you. Um, I was trying to do the sums when I was reading up for today, and I think you're somewhere around 14 UMI albums. Would that be right? Uh, we're about to release our 11th. 11th. And, uh, there's so you're a not bunch. counting the live ones. <laughs> <laughs> Best of. Thank Best you. Of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not a, a willful um, ignoring of, of what has been put out. I'm sure if I'd thought about it, I could. Uh, come up with it, but we've let's just say that we've been around for a while. Uh, it, you do go from that period of being new thing on the block to being um, crusty or a, ve a veteran. It seems overnight, <laughs> or just maybe a couple of bad years, and then suddenly you're on the other other side. You, you is there, is there, do you have a similar experience? <laughs> suddenly you're the, the hot. You know, I mean, you are hot, but there's. <laughs> Author on the block, this and then, is, then suddenly. This is your early moves to wrong foot me. I know where this is going. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not that smart. Really. Uh, but having said that, that you know you're on the other side of whatever that summit is. You've recently bagged a man of the match award in a cricket match. Thanks for bringing that up, Jock. Can, um, you, um, can you take us through what happened? Well, last Sunday, 
Uh, I play football with a bunch of wags. Uh, I'm about at the median age. I'm 51. And there's gentlemen uh, who are in their early 70s and some in their late 20s, but we don't talk to them. <laughs> and we do circuit work football. And then over the summer we play cricket. And uh, it's predominantly male, which actually at the moment it's 100%, which is, <laughs> is disappointing, um, particularly as women's footy is some of the most exciting football you'll ever see at the moment anyway and uh, cricket as well I mean I thought I saw Elise Perry the great Elise Perry Australian cricketer in Elwood the other day and um, I didn't I had less of a reaction seeing me and meeting Keith Richards than I did seeing Elise Perry <laughs> there's, there's Australia's greatest cricketer walking down there uh, but anyway we, we do uh, just play social cricket and then play a fundraiser um, which we did last Sunday, uh, money for uh, a couple of charities around St Kilda. And I turned up a little worse for wear but um, had to have my concentration goggles on and uh, played pretty well and took home, the, took home the trophy and we got the victory and it was a, a wonderful day. But a, a month previous, I was uh, batting at the, at the um, non-striker's end and a friend of mine, Marcus Lyon, swarthy, handsome gent, smashed a forward um, drive, a drive. Uh, and as it came to me, I realised about there. And you don't have a lot of time, but I just turned my head and it whacked me on the back of the scone. And I went flying, apparently. Um, there's not a lot of weight on me, but... Uh, and I wasn't knocked out, but when the, the folks came around and said, come on, we've got to get you to the hospital. There's a history. There's bad history. And I just kept saying, nah, let's get to the pub. Come on, let's keep playing. Let's keep playing. But they'd seen me react as if I'd been shot. Uh, why I mention that is definitely not for sympathy. It's just that um, I'm a very, very stupid man. <laughs> and then went and saw a, a Tex Perkins. My friend was playing a show in St Kilda that night. And so I went out drinking the whole day and then went and saw a Tex play. And um, very, very stupid thing to do. So if I fall over. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, Paul Kelly was involved in this game. Hmm. It, it's an interesting thing to imagine oh, people who you see in one context in a completely different context. What sort of cricketer is Paul Kelly? He's, he's very watchful. He's, uh, <laughs> he's a smart cricketer. He's, he's deft. It's a, he plays it the way he plays football as well. He's very much about um, uh, method and uh, the aesthetics of those games, um, as he does with, with his life, I guess. Um, yeah, Paul, hang on. I, had a, I imagine him as an off-spinner. Is that a fair assessment? Off-spinner, yes. And uh, he tries leggies as well. Um, oh, damn, I had a story about football. But, uh, oh, that's, yes, I was batting and... Uh, Paul didn't play with us during the season. He and but he went and played with the footy mob, and then the footy mob came down and watched the cricket game. And it was all in, in whites and creams, and there was, um, uh, you know, we set up barbecue and, and tents and, and tried to make it an aesthetic pleasure for anyone who happened to be watching, of which there were twelve people. But <laughs> so <clears throat> I was facing, and then hit a pull shot, which I've been working on all year because I don't get my body behind it, but I've learned to get my body behind it 
whack, six, landed. There was no applause from the audience of, of 12 or 24 and the other, the other team out there. But in sportsman-like fashion, we, we applaud a great shot and this, quite frankly, was a great shot. <laughs> Just tumbleweeds, nothing. Because Paul fucking Kelly had turned up and everyone was going, oh, hi, Paul, how are you going? <laughs> so someone yelled, uh, one of my teammates yelled out from the boundary line, oh, we're sorry, Paul arrived. And I said, that's been happening to me for 32 years. You, um, you said in an interview a while ago that you, you have met the Stones and you have supported the Stones but that the only time you've been completely overawed by star power was seeing Dennis Lilly in a restaurant. Mm. Yeah, it was early on too. Um, quite why the musical heroes, I, sure, having a hug from Keith Richards is, is up there and it's, it's a unique experience, not least because he's so tiny and gorgeous. It's like, oh, yeah. Um, and, and Mick Jagger, I was telling uh, my friends this morning, Mick coming in and saying, you know, oh, I saw you do your little impression of me last night on stage. Not bad, but stick to the Pete Towns and stuff, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and as he's talking to you, going, you're the most Mick Jagger-like person I've ever met. <laughs> and Keith going, hey, man, you doing, mate? Here's my boys. Yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. Wait, you're so much like Keith. You know? <laughs> but then running into um, Brent Croswell, for example, ex-Melbourne Carlton, North Melbourne football player. I had an evening with him in Hobart at a football game a couple of years ago and I just didn't know what to say because the, the vernacular we possibly didn't share even though I'm a, a fan of, of sports and you've got that. But as a fan, you've got that vernacular in you. And um, But with uh, musicians, you kind of just go into this... Eh, mm. Lots of um, shorthand, I guess. Uh, you, like among other, speaking you, to a you know an author you adore, it's it's very difficult. Oh, we talk about gerunds and verbs and stuff most of the time. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, so. That is what you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do you? Um, I, I mean, among musicians, is is the talk shop? Is it about musical structure, songwriting? Is it like any other industry that you're talking about what you do? I don't think so. I think that amongst your um, peers or folks that are doing the art that you like, you, you talk about breakfast, um, <laughs> of which I don't eat. So there's th there's that. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but the songwriting or your career, uh, I think maybe I'm from that era where you, if you meet another musician, mm. how's your album selling? You go, yeah, I'll see you later. <laughs> because you, you don't want to, or <laughs> how did you write? No, no, no. You talk about living and uh, I think that being a musician, which is what I wanted to, I don't write much about music in the book, but what I realised after decades is that um, one, people are very expressive to you, uh, not necessarily f fans, but people at music performances want to talk to you and it's becoming more and more obvious that they're not, not there to listen to the music, they just want to share something with you and because you're a musician, you can, uh, for some reason, a, a little bit of a totem by which people can express themselves. And I've been told the most outrageous stuff and very, very touching uh, stuff because um, because I play music most of the time. Um, I'm also a gardener and a, and a, a 
painter. Uh, and then someone said, oh, you paint? I said, no, I don't paint. I paint. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you're a gardener. It's like, no, I'm not a gardener. I'm a gardener. Um, and no one talks to me then. You know, when I'm doing a, a, a garden in two rack and go up from, you know, get a sneaky beer for lunch, no one talks to you. But if, geez, if you carried a guitar down, they'd go, for some reason, you, you're this conduit for. Uh, but there, there, are the, there are these two poles in your life that there's a whole sporting side of you, it seems, and, and, and your fanaticism about North Melbourne and, and, and there's the cricket. It's not fanaticism, baseball. Jock. Yeah. It's a decent appreciation of a beautiful club. A thing as a Collingwood fan I haven't been able to say for many years. <laughs> it's going to be a good year. It's going to um, be a good year. But it's going to be a good you year. talk in the book about how there were these twin poles when you were a kid, that there was Dennis Lilly and there was Gene Simmons, mm. and that then you came to an epiphany at 13 in a mobile dental van. Mm. Can you explain how that works? Is it the anaesthetic? Well, that's the, the, the running joke. Um, remember, I wasn't fearful of dentists and I wasn't fearful of anaesthetic either. But I music was around our family and my parents had great records. They weren't particularly musicians themselves, but they were appreciators and they were very big on real music. If there was rhythm and blues being played or, or country music, they say, this is real stuff. Pop music is not real music. And, uh, then get, getting my teeth checked out in a mobile dentist at uh, Westbourne Park Primary School in Adelaide and Start Me Up by The Stones came on. It was the single out at the time, 1991. <laughs> Bang, and why? It was like, you know, a, 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 a rapid puberty. <laughs> Bang, you know, suddenly I was aware of everything. Ooh, I have... <laughs> Amorous feelings, and uh, <laughs> I wish to take them drugs, and I, I like poetry all of a sudden. Because I got up and I ran home, and then I, my dad wasn't around, but I said to mum, I'll do anything to get a guitar, anything. And said, Well, if you know you do this, and blah, 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 and yeah, maybe in a year you, we can get you a guitar. I said, Yep, yep, yep. But that was just that's what I wanted to do. And then my pad, cricket pads grew mold, um, you know, my bat just stayed under the, uh, under the bed. Everything deteriorated apart from all that that accelerated, which was I became aware of this music um, all of a sudden. And it went in tandem with everything else. Suddenly it was I wanted to kiss people and I wanted to smoke cigarettes and I wanted to drink heavily and I wanted to, to gain intelligence as well and um, learn poetic words. <laughs> and it all happened in a mobile dentist. <laughs> Often uh, that, that that suffix you know, doesn't come from something good. It all happened in a mobile dentist. <laughs> um, and that childhood, you, you talk in the book about how um, you moved around from Kalgoorlie, uh, I think, to Canberra. There was Sydney. Um, there was almost every um, state in Australia. And you've spent now, what, two decades in St Kilda. Is, what do you think of as home? If someone said to you, right, are we going to fire your ashes out of a cannon, mm -hmm. where do you want that to happen? Uh, on the long and lonely road, Jock. <laughs> uh, well, it's not St Kilda at the moment. Uh, I, for some reason, Kalgoorlie. I, I wasn't there a particularly long time, but I think that there's something about... And it's just birth, really, and, and early years. I don't have a connection to land. 
there at all. Um, it was just for some reason that I feel that that's informative uh, to me. When, for example, this morning waking up in Terang and, um, you know, I don't wake up that well and so I went for a walk and I had no particular place to go and I thought, I wonder what this is about me that I don't, don't, I don't want to meet up with people. I don't want to have brekkie unless it's with you. Uh, just going and wandering off somewhere is fine. And I, th I wondered um, whether that was something about just my earliest memories about growing up in Kalgoorlie where you just, if you weren't at school or at kindy or had somewhere to be, you'd just go wandering and, and find an adventure up the road there somewhere. It seemed, you know, obviously it was a deliberate choice in Detours that you opened the book with going back to Kalgoorlie and going back to see your dad and you thinking through the process of I'm going to see dad and this is what we'll do and we won't do this I just realised I've been wearing sunglasses this whole time. <laughs> I, I don't have a bad eye condition. That's just that I'm a bit of a wanker. <laughs> It's what, we'll lay that whole thing out again. <laughs> it's what Bono always used to say to me. Um, but but it, it really felt in the book like Kalgoorlie was home and that everything after Kalgoorlie had sort of been piled on top of it, but that it was still there. It, it was more important for my parents. Now, I, of course, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with Kalgoorlie or if you are, Jock, but it's an, it's an odd, odd town and it's, it's kind of big. And going back there subsequently... Uh, for shows or whatever, it's it's a lot more cosmopolitan than I ever remembered. And I know that you don't put Kalgoorlie and cosmopolitan together often. But these days it's got a lot of um, young folks travelling through and, and getting work there and there's a lot of work there and it's it's got a vibrancy. Whereas um, when I grew up there it was um, the Bowls Club uh, where uh, my grandfather was the, the president for a while. He moved over to, to be with us for a bit. Um, so the bowls club, um, squash courts, um, school, and the whole mining versus, you know, First Nations people, everything, that all came later. So it's a it's not necessarily I'm thinking, Kalgoorlie, what a yes. It's conflictive because, wow, you know, my family was involved in the industry that's – I don't know how I feel about it, but – I like walking the streets, though. Um, you talk in the book a lot about your dad and in particular about his umpiring. And mm. um, then later on came that song, The Umpire's Boy or The Umpire's mm. Son, where my impression of it was in the book, you talk very strongly and positively about your dad's impact in that footy league and that he was a, a significant figure in the community. In the song, it felt to me like you were being a child again and here's your dad, your beloved dad, and people, you know, blokes chock full of beer hurling abuse at him because he's the umpire. Mm. Was that a difficult thing to process as a kid? Yeah, because he was a, a big fella um, and a great player. And I think he got into umpiring for the kids because he knew he couldn't be a player anymore, young kids, and, and uh, he'd, he'd earn an extra, you know, what it was, 20 bucks a week or whatever. Um umpiring uh all his good stories he doesn't talk about his playing days at all um but he talks about his umpiring days mm. i think it says a lot about him that he he could see it all from being an umpire the the um the best and the worst of humanity mm. the beauty and aesthetics of the game and also just this 
what did you just call me? And uh, so that's why I wrote the song and, and I think that's the reason why he talks about it because he, he's not a, necessarily a very parochial person. I didn't know he was an Essendon supporter until I was 14. Uh, I thought he went for North because he turned me on to North in 1974. And uh, and then I found out that he he, tried, he played for the Essendon Reserves or, you know, tried out for them. You know, all these stories came back but he just didn't talk about that. Uh, so his umpiring days were a little more fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, on geography, the you and I have got a new single out mm -hmm. and um, called The Waterboy. And it, it, I mean, aside from being a great song, it's a really interesting lyric in terms of its geography mm. that you're talking about uh, an American band with a Scottish lead singer and mm. Ulladulla and Dublin and Galway and all of these places. And in particular, Rosedale, which, which I take it was where you and I was sort of founded, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Rosedale's in the south coast of New South Wales and my best mate Nick Tischler and I hatched the idea for the band there. Uh, and Nick, we went and, uh, to Barry's dad uh, a few months ago in Rosedale off the coast there um, and it's a place more important to him because I've, I've never lived there but that's where the, the band started. And Nick, you know, if you've got those friends who... Your, your friendship isn't, um, you're never just going to get drunk together. Everything is infused with meaning and, and every uh, parting is, is difficult and, and seeing each other is considered and, and the timing's important. And Nick, for me, is that guy. He's just, he's a very serious human. Um, almost died in a plane crash with Lady Gaga last He's a tour manager now and he was doing um, Lady Gaga's tour in Europe and he's... he's plane um, had a crash landing and uh, he called me from Norway, I think it was, and, and said, Tim, before you read the papers, I'm alive, I'm okay. And, Thanks, Nick. You know, yeah, I'll just go back to bed. Uh, yeah, uh, so the, the bringing up the geography about that, one thing um, I'm interested in talking to you about is writing about Australian geography without getting that accusation of being jingoistic. Because mm. uh, when uh, the band first started and, and uh, we would put, well, I'd put Australian place names into lyrics because it wasn't a grand experiment, but I thought it's an, it's an experiment with language anyway, whether um, Castle Hill, New South Wales, uh, Chippendale works as well as uh, Mississippi or Arkansas or Alabama. Because all those the those American towns and uh, provinces, they're just part of songwriting vernacular. Yeah. Throw Mississippi into the line, even if in Australia, and that's it's oh, that's legitimate. That's that's fine. But if you throw Mittagong in, ah, right. And with um, I can't remember the first time I well, I got a, a quite a bit of uh, encouragement from reading. Uh, Patrick White's Tree of Man and I tried to take some of uh, – I was living in New York at the time in 94 and tried to put a bit of that um, Australian rural experience into song through Patrick White's Tree of Man and see if it worked. And no one said no, so we left it in there. Um, the wind's so strong, you just don't know if anyone wants to be blown by it anymore. There's lines that are lifted from pretty much from that book uh, and it was an experiment and the band didn't know about it. They didn't 
kind of care. I don't really know if they listen to the lyrics much, but <laughs> and no one put it. But then a couple of years later, got accused of being jingoistic because suddenly I was the the bard of the inner west of Sydney, <laughs> when really it was just uh, writing about what you knew about. It also proves, doesn't it, that using Tree of Man as an influence, um, if if you don't wear it too heavily, it's not going to look pretentious, but it's going to have its effect underneath. Um, and, and those lyrics are so effective. But if you had gone around telling people, this is Patrick White, you know, then it would have the opposite effect. I only told my sister that it was lifted from Patrick White because we used to go around to he and Natalie's old house in Castle Hill where I spent a bunch of years and um, uh, come out, you grumpy old bastard. You know, <laughs> Patrick just seemed so grumpy all the time and then it, we went to his house in Centennial Park and <laughs> we, we were teenagers, you know, cheer up, Patrick, you old prick. Uh, <laughs> And recently I got given a book um, of photographs of, of Patrick's life and he's beaming in all of them. He was, he was he, did you ever meet him? He just, he kind of, he, he had fun. He struck me as a happy guy. Oh, beg your pardon? He never struck me as a happy guy. No, well, I'll, show, I'll give you this book. <laughs> Tom Bodicum from our book club yeah. actually gave it to me. Uh, yeah, he, I'll tell you a little story about Terrain Please. last night, if that's all right. So uh, last night my Dear friends Craig and Brooke, who are here today, we're, we're um, doing this uh, show at the moment where we play uh, a bunch of covers, uh, uh, a lot of bluegrass country styles. But Craig asked me last night, would you mind doing a song of your own? And I said, well, yeah, I've written a couple, but nah, let me pull out the old number 76 hit from 1998. I'm going to do Heavy Heart. Right. So I played that. Uh, John, beautiful uh, fiddle player, was playing with me. Uh, played the song. It felt pretty good to sing it. I don't mind singing that song anymore. Uh, but I was sitting at the bar in between sets and a lovely lady, she was a little older than us, she was maybe in you know, mid-late 60s, 42 kilograms wet through, came and touched me on the shoulder and said, you're Tim. Yes, and your name is? And we talked and she said, you're not really that sad, are you? <laughs> I said... Well, I don't know. You know, sort of comes hand in hand, I think, with uh, with songwriting for some reason. But then we ran into her on the streets of Terang this morning. She came up and went, "How are you doing?" <laughs> I said, "I'm doing pretty good." And uh, I said, "I'll I'll be around in the afternoon to mow your lawns." You know, the old, I'll use the old charm. She said, "No, I mow my own lawns, Tim." <laughs> but she she went through the whole method. I do the back. And then she goes in for a cup of tea and she charges up the batteries and then she does the front. Does she do edges? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> forgot, forgot to ask. <laughs> um, Tim, slight change of direction, but one of the things that I loved in Detours was uh, a chapter about Goose Grey and Susie. Mm. And their effect on your life, and, and it seemed it was the time in your life when when you met them. It was their incredible charisma. It was all of these different things that sort of um, set you on a path, but also you, you were well looked after by them. Can, can you just explain to us why they were so important? Sure. Thank you for asking. Uh, These two characters, uh, Goose, nickname, uh, and Susie, his partner, looked like um, characters from a Grand Guignol. Production. It was all feathers and, and boas and hair and um, leather and and like and they 
liked me and I was um, pretty heavily medicated uh, kid. About I was about 20, uh, 1920. Uh, had to drop out of law school because of an anxiety condition. So I moved back to my mother's house in Sydney but went out to shows with my best friend Nick and my brother um, under pretty heavy medication. But Goose and Susie from this band called Box the Jesuit, which is an old seafaring uh, metaphor for masturbation. Uh, and they they were abstract and avant-garde and really it's the kind of music and performance that would normally set me off um, and I'd, I'd just have to leave but I just loved them and then got to meet them as uh, personally and they took me under their wing and they said, well, hey, Goose had this quite a, almost a Stentonian voice for this stick insect of a gentleman with hair exploding here. and incredible. Incredible looking gentleman. And, uh, well, Tim, um, let's come round for dinner and uh, let's have some champagne. And I'd go around and I'd expect, you know, the fits come out. And, oh, we're going to all start getting – I'm going to have my first couple of experiences with heroin now. And But no, no, they, they, they were – a couple of others in the band were, were heroin users at the time. But Goose and Susie loved to look after people and you'd come round into their – Apartment that was like a mixture of Quentin Crisp's apartment and uh, some um, a Dr. Seuss invention. <laughs> and I'd always expect, you know, all oh, right, the food's going to be laced with acid, and yeah, here we go, we're going to all start, everyone's going to start rooting each other, and I'm going to. No, it was oh, you haven't read, um, you know, this book and uh, this, this this poet, a story of the eye by E. A. Was it Bate? Um, and they'd loved. Uh, you know, Borghese, for example, and I couldn't understand Borghese at the time, but, you know, then with uh, Baudelaire and, they, of course, Rambo was, of course, you know, with everyone pretended to understand Rambo. <laughs> and they, they let me in. And I was just a suburban kind of kid with an anxiety condition and heavily medicated, but they brought me in and uh, and I joined the band for a while and then they gave uh, our band, you and I, all these shows. It was just this... Um, and hopefully what I learned from that was that you can be generous, but you can be really cool as well. That, that, and I'm noticing in my daughter at the moment that uh, coolness has historically been associated with insouciance and not caring. When then what I got from them was that the coolest thing to do is to be really interested in everything unless a bore. And then you just walk away. But what amazed me about that chapter was that at the end of it, you know, I had the feeling as a reader that um, Goose Grey must have been deep into his 50s or somewhere, that he was this kind of elder statesman and mentor. And you said at the very end he, he died at 33. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It was... I knew he was sick. Uh, it was very obvious. He physically deteriorated really quickly. And this was uh, 92, 93... And we went, the band went to, uh, to, to, to Minneapolis to make our first album. And uh, Goose and Susie said, come around, we want to say, see you later on your voyage. And I went around with my partner uh, and had this big old afternoon carrying on and, and I didn't get it. He was saying, I'm not going to be here when you get back. And so... We were there making the record and we recorded this song, Berlin Chair. Uh, and I got the call just after we finished it and it was Tracy and she said, yeah, he's gone. Said, what do you mean? You know, again, very, very stupid human to not realise that this 
my hero was was dying. I just thought, no, I'll get back and we'll carry on uh, with life as it is. And um, and you wrote that beautiful song, Grey, about him. Mm. Was that before or after his death? It was after. Uh, I think I wrote it when we were making that first record because, yeah, I, had, I wrote his number, his phone number on my hand I need to call you tomorrow for some reason. And then it was the next day that he that he died. That's right. And mm. there was that connection in the lyrics you talk about Cannon Falls, which was mm. where you were recording when you were told about his passing. Mm-hmm. And Cannon Falls um, is, what, near Minnesota? It's oh. near Minneapolis, near, yeah. Near Minneapolis. Mm. And, and you have this other thing about the replacements and the replacements are a great Minneapolis band. And <laughs> did all, how does all that geography pull together? Is that unconscious or are they things that you're chasing? Well, I wonder where geography sits with, with us being you know, Australians because it, it, geography is such a big deal with uh, – as a – English fan of English music and, and, and where you are in that tiny little continent is such a big deal. Mm. And your class and all that. And in the States it is as well. Oh, you're a southern. Oh, you're an eastern. Oh, you're from that part. Oh, you're from that. I wonder where that sits with us um, and whether it means anything anymore. You know, I'm, I'm a St Kilda wanker and... Uh, does that make me any difference from an Adelaide wanker or, you know, a, or, a, or a wanker from Tennant's Creek? You know? <laughs> Although uh, it's been an interesting uh, year. When, please let's not talk about it. But the uh, being Victorian, of course, and uh, a couple of months ago, the guitarist in You and My Davey, who's the sweetest guy in the world, but he and I got asked to do some shows in New South Wales. And it's maybe three or four months ago when we were still Victorians, you know. And... <laughs> So Dave and I drove up there and we were nervous. And I mean, I'm a germaphobe and um, hypochondriac and I just don't really like being around people and that whole thing. So what the plague meant to me was an interesting experience as it was for everybody. But anyway, we drove up and the first place, the first place we stopped was Wollongong. And, but on the drive up there, Dave and I said, we're never going to complain about anything ever again. We haven't played, we haven't toured, we're not going to complain about anything we complained about the first motel we stayed in. Was, <laughs> there was blood on the sheets. It was a, it was, it was a spatter of blood. It wasn't too bad. But my favourite bit was that there was a music player on the wall and it had a big knob up there and it had uh, radio, FM, AM and then Muzak. <laughs> this can't bode well. Blood. And there was, a, there was a sign on the front door that said, please remove your, shoe, please remove your shoes in our effort against uh, COVID. Da, da, da. To which Dave and I looked at each other and said, the bottom of our shoes is the cleanest thing in this room. And someone bled out in here. <laughs> then I went to, I thought, well, I might be, I'll eat something and went to a takeaway Mexican joint and I couldn't get the words out. And the lady said, take your time. I said, I'm really sorry, ma'am. I'm from Melbourne. <laughs> she went, oh, my God. How are you? I said, I'm fine. I said, would you like a drink? I said, yes. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> we'll bring you something. <laughs> yeah. Tim, um, 
there is an unfinished story in Detours, and I love the fact that it's unfinished, but I'm going to ask you to finish it. Can I just read this little bit and then you tell me what happens? So, <laughs> Jock, Jock Sarong, Am I wrecking your one art? of the finest novelists in the world, yeah. <laughs> and he's throwing me something on. Yeah, right, I'll meet that challenge. Here we go. Don Walker leans across the aisle of the plane from his seat, one row in front of mine, up, <laughs> up the pointy end. And in his unhurried drawl that could or should be the voice of a deity, asks if I'm a Paul Keating fan. After my reply in the affirmative, Don looks at me and leans closer. Let me tell you one thing about Paul Keating. I can feel every passenger's neck, all hundred of them, <laughs> craning at uncomfortable <laughs> angles <laughs> to eavesdrop. Don Walker, the Don, one of the greatest songwriters ever to draw breath, is about to tell a personal story about Paul Keating. And then he just stops. <laughs> well, it's, it's possibly litigious. It's good. I'll try and tell it really quickly, but you've got to promise not to tell anyone else. So Don Walker, the Don, he's a hero to any, any songwriter anywhere. And, but he is methodical in everything. Well, not methodical, but he takes his bloody time. Please, this is just between us and, and this is with respect to Don, but hell, I've had beers for breakfast, so what the, who cares? Don says, I, I think Keating's a bit of a wanker. Again, everyone in the plane just leans in closer. <laughs> but it was that Paul was, Mr Keating, was selling his house and Don uh, and his beautiful family were putting a bid in. But Mr Keating was showing uh, Don and his family around, but he, he delayed it to be at dusk and he refused to turn on lights but gave everyone torches and Mr Keating put the torch down there and Don's explaining this on the plane, saying he was just doing it for effect, Jim, you know, to, uh, showing us around this house. In this crepuscular light of Woolara in Sydney, Paul Keating showing Don Walker and his family around a house, perspective to buy, and then Don uh, did, I believe, but Paul was very particular about the particular uh, shade of, of paint to be used on, well, just, a, just an, an aesthete to a to a meticulous level yeah. and I, I don't have any stories like that. And so Paul Keating's got a spook torch under his chin. Yes, that, the, the, uh, and this is Don's story, this isn't mine. But had, had the spook torch, is that a, is that a, is that a thing? Would be for him. Bloody hell, but yes. Uh. Uh, elsewhere, Tim, you complain about, uh, this, is, this is out walking around St Kilda. I'm noticing a change. I suspect we're lucky to be still standing upright, but as our parks and streets are cluttered with personal trainers and increasing numbers of clients, it seems we're deep within a new age of vainglory. Where is the line between sartorial elegance and vanity? When have you gone too far? Well, now, you're a good looking rooster job. <laughs> Not an answer. I am not. <laughs> I am not. I've been uh, beaten around with the ugly stick and I feel that the way <laughs> I uh, present myself uh, is a s substitute 
or it's uh, regard myself as a source of amusement to to other people. I certainly was to those uh, gentlemen uh, calling at me in Terang yesterday. <laughs> hey, cowboy, where did you go? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the vanity thing, uh, the way I present myself, I mean, turning up here, sure, and I, apparently I've got a swagger, but that's only because I've had two knee re reconstructions. Um, the way I present myself is I, I think that I don't trust, uh, I like the way I can write sometimes. Uh, whether in song, particularly in song, but my uh, worth as a as a human in in interaction, I think it, it's got a time limit, and so uh, I've got a you know, a couple of good stories. Sure, I'm a little bit charming, but if <laughs> if I present myself like this and then disappear, people go, "Who is that guy?" <laughs> It's not no. really an answer, is it? No. So we'll work around it. <laughs> um, now, I'm worried. I, I feel like I'm using up a lot of your time and there are things I really want to get to, like Desert Island writers. Who, who are your absolute favourites? Who are the ones who have moved you in your songwriting? Who do we need to read? Who do we need to read? I think uh, uh, I'll leave my fandom at the, at the door of you. Uh, <laughs> I think Patrick DeWitt is uh, my recent uh, fascination. I think uh, Canadian guy now living in the States. Um, uh, he, I started on a, a uh, short story kind of col collection, but I uh, and then I got sent from Germany from a friend uh, Patrick DeWitt's first novella called Ablutions, and. I read that and uh, wrote to my friend in Germany, thanks, Rebecca, I've just thrown away a um, couple of hundred pages of uh, this thing I was working on because it's a far better um, examination or a, bit, a far better... Um, it's writing about um, being a drunk, and which is boring for, for everyone, particularly people who have to live with them, but it's, and it, but it's what I know. And so thought, well, maybe I've got an interesting uh, little perspective on it. And then reading Patrick DeWitt's Ablutions blew it all out of the water. I said, oh, that, that's my story, just right. in Hollywood as opposed to in, uh, in St Kilda. I, I really love Heather Rose, a Tasmanian uh, author. Museum of Modern Love, I thought, was knocked my teeth out. And then um, uh, I got to go and spend some time with Heather and, and Sophie Laguna, actually, in, who I, I absolutely infinite, uh, infinite splendours, her last novel, which uh, destroyed me, uh, actually. And I got to spend some time with Heather and Sophie at a writers' festival and disgraced myself. That, that was such great... And I was, I was a, a fan um, and at, at a point we were at a, uh, out the front of a hotel and I said... Quadruple whiskeys for all, or something um, bullshit. And the bartender brought it, and Heather just looked at me and said, oh, "You're such a rock star." <laughs> and I looked at her and said, Kong. "Grabbed hers." Kong. She went, "That's a <laughs> totally forgetting that 
we had a talk together the next day. But she was she was uh, graceful enough to forgive me, and, and uh, she said that she found it all uh, funny at the very least. But um, Heather, Sophie, uh, and, and Patrick, um, uh, Martin, uh, yeah, Martin Mackenzie, ah, jeez, Mackenzie Murray, Mackenzie Murray, mm. the speechwriter mm. that he put out recently. He sent me a um, a copy that I absolutely loved it. Yeah. A world I know nothing about political writing. I um, think um, is it. Uh, James Button wrote one about speechwriting too, a year in my father's business. Um, so he was a, a speechwriter for the, I guess, for the Labor Party, son of John Button, and um, that's a great book. Yeah, similar idea, I suspect. The having a speechwriter, I wish I had a speechwriter sometimes. But um, have you done any speechwriting before? Probably not beyond the Village Green here. <laughs> that's about the limit of my jurisdiction. What a what a fascinating job that would be, would be yeah. uh, because what you're presenting on the page is is you, it's got to be a little bit of you and there's got to be a little bit of your client but that, and then there's got to be um, this is for um, this is for all time yeah this is for our time I think isn't there still contention about who actually wrote the Redfern speech well, did you hear the recent Don Watson interview with uh, was it uh, Tony Wilson uh, Oh, incredible. Um, and um, the breakdown, Don Watson in his talk with, it's, it's a, uh, damn, uh, Tony Wilson uh, does Speak it. Speakola? Speakola is the name of the, the podcast and it's all about great speeches. Uh, and there's an interview with Don Watson and uh, it's quite amazing. And, and I, I didn't know much about Don until the last couple of years, but um, he talks a lot about it, it's all about the Redfern speech. Right. Yeah. I speak holder, it's well worth it. You know. um, now, at this stage in your life, you've put so many of your you know, really private thoughts into song and, and have shared them with people really generously. But do you feel like are you moving more towards prose now, or do you think these things will still manifest as songs? And how do you know which is which? Well, writing songs is fun. And writing otherwise isn't. Um, that was supposed to be humorous, but you know, <laughs> that's why I wrote songs. Uh, we've talked about it before. I don't feel uh, in, inside myself the my wish to write, particularly fiction, is is vanity based. Yeah, yeah, because I can – I read fiction for – not for pleasure but for, for – uh, it's a necessity. No, I wasn't a big reader as a kid at all. I came to reading fiction late and it's a complete necessity. It's like um, water or Irish coffee in the morning. Uh, that – an absolute necessity for any kind of peace uh, and any kind of um, relief from – um, sadness and so I don't <clears throat> honestly feel the capacity to do that although writing songs uh, while some days feels as un untouchable as the North Pole other days it's just it, it's there and everything's working and it's so wonderful mm -hmm. so I think unless uh, 
Um, I just really try and try and try, but I think that writing fiction at the moment would be for, for vanity rather than that the world needs to hear my voice because what happens with uh, songwriting I've found is that um, uh, even songs that, that lyrically aren't great. Now, to, uh, this is in no way being... Um, uh, being self, um, you know, um, defeating, but Heavy Heart, a song that I wrote years and years ago, lyrically, is not great, but it it people like it, and when performing it, I can enjoy that. But if I wrote that as prose or as, as poesy, whatever, and had to present that, I just couldn't do it. But there's music accompanies um, wordplay where things can be forgiven and what's not, what you haven't expressed in lyrics, the music colours all that. Yeah. Uh, hopefully. Um, lyrics like, the ones when, where you're telling what feels like a very personal story, and I'm thinking of perhaps Please Don't Ask Me to Smile or Hand Washer, mm. are you directly speaking from your own heart or are you creating a fictional character and telling his story? No, I didn't have the, the capacity to write in another character. So that was just a part of myself, yeah. you know, just a, a, a um, wussier version of it. <laughs> but this, when you when singing those songs um, and singing those lyrics, you can either think, oh, well, let's get some tears in people's eyes, let's, let's affect them, or... When I'm singing, I think, I, I don't believe in this anymore. There's lyrics in, in both of those songs where I think, I don't believe this anymore. Um, something about not taking sides in, in that Don't Ask Me To Smile song. I, I think you should take sides now. and that, But that, who I was at that time, I thought that. I was just this kind of, just let me sleep one day. And, and now I think you should take sides, absolutely, on on. A lot of things, and to, to acquiesce horrible behaviour is um, what you walk past is what you accept and what you say yes to. And so I don't believe that, and it's difficult singing that song now. And so I won't sing it tonight or tomorrow, <laughs> but maybe next time. <laughs> um, has the process changed down through the years? Do you still, I don't know, do you carry notebooks? Do you do you need to strum to find a melody? What what, what do you go through? Are you asking me about processes, Jock? We've got to do processes. The one, the one thing that, that you hate being asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just type. It's very simple. It's, it's a little similar that you just uh, scribble away. Um, I love working just uh, pencil and paper. Uh, there was a uh, three months ago I wrote seven songs in seven days and I was really happy with them all. Uh, they are about the death of my... Um, ex-wife's father, uh, there was another one about just looking out a window uh, and it just seemed, oh, I'm back. You know, I can, this shit's easy. Uh, I think the, the big difference now is that I edit myself. I look back at uh, lyrics or anything I even write for radio, um, so my radio show or anything if I'm, I've been commissioned and I edit myself. I look through and I go, no, I'm not happy with that. That's not good enough. And... Uh, for a songwriter, my friends here who are genius songwriters, editing yourself as a songwriter is really difficult because you just, you're in this moment, it's all flowing, you don't want to look back at it. Uh, but if now after the 33 years of, of 
singing songs thing you may have to sing them for another couple of years so you, you might as well make them good do they uh, do you have lyrics that are orphans without tunes or do they always come hand in hand yeah i've got a number of orphans without tunes actually that's i did a show in melbourne the other night at the same pub that i painted which was a unique experience uh you know as you're playing and you're looking going Really, and leaving them without music as a as a test does this hold up as either poesy or um, as as prose? Because music can be manipulative. Geez, you put good chords if you've got a beautiful voice like Craig and Brooke, uh, you can get away with a lot. I'm not accusing them of getting away with a lot. But, <laughs> but man, I mean, a beautiful voice or, or music behind something. Um, uh, but if you lay it bare, oh, it's got to be good. And so that when reading particularly fiction, that's what knocks me out. I mean, you think, how, how does this happen? Uh, writing in memoir form, you know, you put your character into there, you, you write in a style but uh, particularly writing fiction because you you you're, you're creating the, the whole uh, the whole picture um and it's it's, it's intimidating so mm, one day one day i'll try um now i'm conscious that we've chatted a lot and i could genuinely chat about these things all day they're absolutely fascinating and thank you um but i wonder if we need to ask you guys to ask a question or two would anyone like to chat to tim oh there you go zed Oh, no, this never ends well. <laughs> we've, uh, we've got a mutual set of mates and a few years ago you told me and these mates about a trip you made back from Newcastle playing with that uh, jazz band you played with, the Bamboos. You thought you were this uh, big rock star and they were in the back of the bus going mad. I, 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 I've got to tell you, I, I don't think I'm a big rock star. <laughs> I just am. <laughs> Yeah, the, the drive from Newcastle to Sydney is uh, the least favourite of any musician. Can we establish that? It's the worst drive. You think it's going to take an hour and it takes three. Uh, but I was touring with this band called The Bamboos, uh, a soul funk band, and um, I joined them thinking, come on, these, these are jazz people. I'm, I'm a rock and roll guy, right? And so turn it up, bags of blow and fucking whiskey hanging out. With, uh, and um, they destroyed me after two days completely. <laughs> don't, don't ever try and take on a jazz people. They, they will kill you. But anyway, after this gig in Newcastle, and I could barely get through a song. I was crumbling after the uh, night before in Sydney. Damn bamboos. And we were, as we were driving home up the F3, is it? Yes. Uh, and I had my head out a window. Um, and as I pulled my head in and I said to the driver, Andre, I said, I think I'm starting to feel better. We got sideswiped by this car and it took out the um, mirror that where my head was. Um, took it out, bang. And the two cars stopped, side of the road, and, and the driver of the car gets out and goes, Jesus Christ, you all okay? And we said, yeah, yeah, I think we're okay. The bamboos are fine. They're still in the back. They didn't realise anything's going on. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then this chill come out and the guy was wearing a Powderfinger T-shirt, the driver of the, the car that almost <laughs> killed me. Powderfinger T-shirt. And Powderfinger, old friends of mine, some of my best, Bernie's my brother from another, blah, 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 all that. But I thought, wow, imagine if I got beheaded by a guy <laughs> wearing a Powderfinger T-shirt. But, hey, that's poetic. <laughs> you just reminded me of, of a major note I had made for myself, which was that you were going to tell us about the day that Gene Simmons met Roy and HG. Because I simply cannot conceive of this thing. Right. So uh, maybe 15 years ago and doing the Roy and HG, uh, one of their TV shows, and I'm a massive fan, I know you are too, just two of the John and, and Greg, most brilliant, beautiful minds. Uh, you and I were guests, we were playing on the show, but I also uh, had a talk with uh, Roy and HG. Gene Simmons was another guest and before the show I happened to be in the makeup room of the ABC I think it was at the time and with Gene Simmons now I was a big Kiss fan as a kid but kind of pretty much worked out Gene at least I still love those records but but Gene is an interesting character so we're getting now I'm getting a little bit of makeup done Gene's getting a little bit more uh, <laughs> And he, he was very charming. Tim, yes, I heard about your band, you and I. Hmm, what does that mean? But he spent most of the time talking about how he found first class, first class air travel to be unsatisfactory these days. <laughs> and at the same time, he was stroking the hair of the work experience girl. Uh, which... Just, uh, you know, there's, there's too much to unpack there. But anyway, um, so I thought, wow, I'm meeting a, a childhood uh, big, big icon for me. And um, it was an interesting talk. Now, when I say stroking the hair of the work experience girl, I, I, it all was just so weird talking to Jean. We're going to make it done. Um, you know, I don't know how forensically I can represent that experience. But after Jean gave his interview with uh, Roy and HG, I went to the desk and went, hey, Greg, hey, John, and they were both just dumbfounded. I said, is everything okay? And I said, that was the most awful experience I've ever had. You know, it's the, um, yeah, anyway, it was, it was quite something. And so I wrote a song about it, as uh, anyone with courage does, you know, do you confront the situation or do you write a song about it? <laughs> and then Jean wrote to me through a magazine and said, Tim, it's lovely to meet you. I'm, I like the song. and uh, But yes, if you have any problems with the way I uh, make my money, uh, please, any money you receive, please send it to this address. And, uh, <laughs> so he's doubled down. He's, he, he really did double down, yeah. yeah. I was really fascinated by your comments around uh, people's connection with experience of coming to see you and that it... Um, If I can just clarify, and I do apologise, I maybe didn't represent it properly at the start, but I don't think that they necessarily wanted to connect with, with me. I think people just wanted to connect together. And um, 
I experienced that when um, playing in other countries. Now, this is just my experience, that uh, playing in Australia, Australia is just not necessarily a listening audience. Now, I thought, oh, that's the quality of the songwriting, but then when you play elsewhere, people really listen. And I don't think it's necessarily a language thing. Um, but, for example, this year everyone's saying it's so great to have live music back, isn't it? So great to have live music back. I played a show, I played a couple of shows as, as favours for people and I could set myself on fire and no one would. Uh, <laughs> so that that's that example. People are just happy to, to communicate again and, and maybe talk a little bit about whether it's trauma or experiences. But um, <clears throat> I just, uh, when you're, my line to someone uh, the other night, I, I did a show at a, at a friend's pub as a favour. She said, um, how much would it cost for you to play at my pub? I'd said, let's, you know, give me a six pack and it's fine. And so I did. And uh, it was just this big social event and, and the cognoscenti of St Kilda were there talking and I thought... I, I could just, I don't know, um, don't know what I'm doing here. Um, and I think uh, having music in particular, having someone on stage, it's like, I guess a lot of people just see it as an invitation to talk. Uh, and my line was, geez, I, I wrecked my life to write these songs and geez, why bother if no one's going to listen? But then, hey, you wreck your life, uh, deal with it. You did it yourself. No one asked me to you know, become a... A, a mess to, to write these songs but um, and then other, other nights people really do listen uh, at the pub where I painted and maybe it was because I used special paint that people <laughs> and, and they did listen but it's it's not to communicate with me I think to communicate together yeah. you know if there's music in the background hey it's talking unfortunately that you know the precious little souls that we are like listen to my song <laughs> No, you're not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've played in Port Perry before. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, I guess I meant, did you feel, yeah, you ever feel that burden of, oh gosh, someone has really laid their soul bare to me because they see me as a kind of conduit of, of meaning. Now I've got to write a song about it. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, I think that would be a little disingenuous. If people just want to talk to you mm. because they've seen you play on stage, then... Uh, I, I don't have a particularly long um, tolerance for it because I'd just rather be by myself. But th they've, if they want to do that, that's um, great. Um, I just, and they obviously want to talk about something or just to hang out. Um, so you're on stage, I wouldn't mind talking at you. That's absolutely fine. I just don't think I'll hang around for all that long. You know. There's um, time when. Uh, I was doing a show in uh, Washington, D.C., and D.C. is a town I have no great affection for, but I was there by myself, travelled quite a while on a bus to get there, and as I was walking to this show, um, I was looking at uh, families out having dinner and couples and went really doing a gig on a Thursday or Friday night and looking and go, wow, geez, it'd be nice to go out and be with Pete friends. And, and then I thought, no, I don't. <laughs> I want to go and play three chord folk songs to, you know, to 12 people. <laughs> I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to have dinner. 
I'm gonna play some fucking songs and get free drinks. Speaking of which. <laughs> what about the experience of, given I'm a foot shorter than you, if I go and see a band, there, there is this forest of phones upraised. When you're standing there looking down at all of those phones pointing at you, is there a thought process? Is it annoying? Does it not matter? It used to be. Uh, it used to be. It's it's something now. And I can't presume what people want from that experience. Maybe I, I don't understand it, but they could. this could be the one show they've seen and will see in years. And may, if they want a photographic representation of it, that's fine. It's not great. I'd rather... If I look at people to see faces, because faces are fascinating, phones aren't fascinating. But I, I don't think uh, the, the tide's going to change. Thank you. What about old mate? Known him a long time. He's hard. I'm banned here. Um, yes. Now, was there any other question? There's one out the back. G'day. We talk most weeks, yeah. Um, just it's hopefully things improve and we can be together. I wanted to move in with Alejandro and Alejandro Escovedo is it's true. <laughs> Alejandro Escovedo, uh, Texas, Los Angeles. Um, he's got his uh, his first band, The Nuns, supported the Sex Pistols at their last show in San Francisco '77. He's got this kind of punk rock history, but then moved into other music forms, um, I guess Americana you'd call it. Uh, he's a uh, fascinating gentleman, very dapper and incredible company. And they, uh, I just fell in love with he and his wife Nancy and said, that's it, I'm moving to Texas. Because uh, my daughter, who still lives in New York, and I thought I'm just edging closer to be with her, you know. Um, so it's, it's on the cards, you know. Um, they're both doing really, really well. And it's just always on the cards. Uh, with people that you love that much and, and um, we'd shared a very intense couple of weeks together um, that often think, we're such great friends, should we collaborate or should we just stay friends? Like Tex Perkins and I, who he's one of my dearest friends but and we've done records and tours together which have severely tested our relationship because we're both naughty and little hot-headed at times and we love each other and at times don't know how to deal with that. And so when talk comes up about doing something professionally again, my response, let's just stay in love. <laughs> and he's so much better singer than I am. <laughs> Damn. Uh, Timothy Adrian Rogers. I think we better end it there. Jocks are on. It's All been right. a great pleasure. Thank My you pleasure. so much for chatting to us. <laughs> Cheers, mate.